Brothers and sisters, words have power. Words have power to transform lives or to ruin lives. They truly have the power of life and death. Words can lift people out of discouragement and darkness. Words can ruin relationships, but words can bring healing. Words can inspire new dreams, new actions, new ways of living. Some words have powerfully transformed history. When I simply say the phrase, I have a dream, we are called immediately to mind the inspiring vision of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm sure each one of you can think of words from a friend, maybe a sermon or a story, a movie, some type of words that have moved you and have had a profound effect on your life. But I think if we were to stack up all of the messages, all of the stories, all of the, of the words of the world, and compared them to the words of Jesus of Nazareth in the Sermon on the Mount, they would not compare. They would not compare. None have been as world-changing than the sermon Jesus gave 2,000 years ago. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest collection of teachings from the greatest teacher in the history of humankind. St. Augustine called it the perfect standard of the Christian life. Scott McKnight calls it the greatest moral document of all time. It truly is what I'm calling it in this sermon series, the world's greatest sermon. And I believe its words truly have the power to transform your life, your relationships, the church, everyone around you, and our world. And not only is it the most powerful collection of teaching known to mankind, I believe it is specially prevalent in the times that we find ourselves in. Consider some of the topics that Jesus will address in the sermon and see if you can't find more than one that you can identify with. How Christians are to live as light in a dark world, living righteously, how to deal with anger, toxic speech, reconciliation with others, lust, marriage, divorce, truthful speech, love for your enemies, generosity, money, and your possessions, how to pray, how to deal with worry and anxiety, judging others and hypocrisy, watching out for false teaching, how to find the real way to life and to build your life on the right things. How many found more than one thing that you can identify with in your life? <laughs> okay, I think we all can. In this sermon, Jesus teaches Christians how to relate to God, how to relate to the world, how to relate to each other, how to re relate to our own selves, our lives, and what's in our hearts. It amazingly touches on every facet of the human condition. And so before we begin on actually looking at the words of this powerful sermon, I want to give us three keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Three keys. The first is this. The sermon points to Jesus' magnificence. It points to his magnificence. The immediate context that Matt read for us this morning is Jesus going around Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing all kinds of diseases, and people are coming to him from everywhere. And then it says in chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, it seems 
significant that Jesus goes up on a mountain. Important, thi- important things happen on mountains in the story God has been writing. And it seems that Matthew in particular wants us to see this connection. Uh, Luke, you may know, the Gospel of Luke has another version of this sermon, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Because in Luke chapter 6, it says, Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. Now, Luke is probably referring to a, a plateau on top of a, a small mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Um, in fact, I've been to a place called the, the Church of the Beatitudes that overlooks the Sea of Galilee that sits, sits on a small hillside. And this is where most people think that Jesus probably gave this teaching. Um, on a side note, I'd love to take a group from the church to Israel someday and Faith Academy is uh, considering that as a potential class offering uh, in the near future, so keep your, keep your eyes out for that. Stay tuned. But anyway, Matthew wants to highlight that this happened on a mountain. Why? Well, Matthew, he is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And he wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole story God has been writing thus far. And so Jesus is is going up on a mountain to teach the moral vision of his kingdom, is reminiscent of Moses going up on a mountain and giving the moral vision of God's kingdom to his people, the Torah. So, in fact, many in church history have drawn this similarity between Moses and Jesus. And if you know the story, you might remember that both were in danger when they were babies. Both were rescued from an evil ruler who might have destroyed them. Both later came back when the danger was over. Both fasted for 40 days and both go up on a mountain and have a vision, a moral vision for how people are to live in God's kingdom. But what have been most shocking for Jesus' audience is his authoritative interpretation of what Moses said. And often in the sermon, you're going to hear Jesus say, well, you've heard it said this way, but I say to you, and he's quoting the Torah, he's quoting Moses and giving a authoritative teaching or interpretation. And so Jesus is a new and better Moses, giving a new and better covenant for his new and better kingdom. And if that wasn't shocking enough, there's an even bigger difference between how Moses said things and how Jesus says things. Scott McKnight says that perhaps the most astounding feature of Jesus' ethics is that while Jesus clearly speaks for God, and Jesus clearly fits the profile of a prophet, Jesus never says, thus saith the Lord. He speaks directly as the voice of God. See, in the Old, all the Old Testament great prophets, you'll hear that saying over and over again, thus says the Lord, thus says God. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Well, Jesus never says that. See, in his teaching, we encounter not just a great prophet, but the Lord himself speaking to us. And while the people did not know that at this point when they heard this, but they did notice that Jesus taught differently than all of their other teachers. And at the end of the sermon, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Friends, Jesus taught like one who had authority because he did have all the authority. He has all the authority in heaven and upon earth, and his teaching amazed people. So 
when we listen, when we read, when we meditate upon and memorize these words, let's remember that they come from the most amazing, most magnificent, most authoritative teacher ever known in human history. They come from a new and better Moses. They come from the Messiah, the one who fulfills the story of Israel that God's been writing. And they also come from the King of the kingdom, the Lord Himself. So when He speaks, are we not to listen? So this sermon, it points to how magnificent, how amazing, how awesome Jesus is. The second thing we need to understand is that the sermon teaches disciples of Jesus how to live in His kingdom. It teaches disciples of Jesus how to live in His kingdom. Now, Laura's brother, Jonathan, uh, he married quite a while ago. He married a Japanese woman, my sister-in-law, Rieko. And uh, for the wedding, when Laura and I were just engaged at the time, we flew out uh, to Okinawa, Japan for the wedding. Uh, now, if you're not aware, Japanese culture is very different than American culture. Uh, for, there's different things we value, different things we practice. Uh, one small example is that you don't tip at restaurants. You don't, you, there's no tipping. That, that took some while to get used to. Um, and I learned a very important lesson when you're in Japan. Uh, never, ever use an empty glass or a water glass to make a toast on a special occasion. Never do that. <laughs> Friends, in a short time, I managed to commit several cultural faux pas that brought so much shame upon myself and the family, it's unbelievable. Now, let me tell you a story. What happened was, uh, the guys of the family were out to dinner. Uh, it was late at night. This is like 2, 3 in the morning. We've been having a whole celebration all evening long. And uh, we're with Jonathan, Laura's brother, and we're, we're, live, we're uh, with his brother-in-law. Um, and then we're also with uh, Jonathan's father-in-law, Mr. Gushi. And uh, we're sitting around the table, and everyone uh, ordered some sake. Now, I had tried sake on the trip. I didn't particularly like the taste. And so I, I decided, you know, I'm just going to get a cup of water. I've had some other stuff tonight. I'm just going to have water. So I get a cup of water. Everyone's drinking sake. And uh, there's some, some type of toast is happening. They're... they're they're, they're toasting Jonathan and the new family and all these relationships. And so everyone goes to raise the glass. So I go to raise my water glass. And as the toast is happening, Mr. Gushi sees me. And he gets up out of his chair. And he makes his arms. He doesn't speak any English. Any English and he makes his arms like this. <laughs> what did I do? What did I do? Jonathan's brother-in-law then turns to me and he explains. He speaks English. He speaks both languages. And he says, you never do that. <laughs> if, you, if you toast with an empty glass or water, that is something that you only do at a funeral. <laughs> and if you do that, if you do that, you are insulting all of the dead family members of our family. I said, oh my gosh. I put down my glass and refrained from engaging in the toast. And that's when I learned I was not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> I was in a place with different values, different practices that were not intuitive to me, that I did not understand. If you will, I was in a different kingdom with different values, different practices, different lines of authority. And when Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth, we now enter a community with different values, things that are not intuitive to the human nature. 
Because mo- most of these things that Jesus are going to teach are going to be incredibly shocking to us. They will feel the opposite of what you think you should do, of what you sh- feel like you want to do. They come to us from, as a counterculture to our way of being as humans and, as, and in the world. And because of that fact, because it's so countercultural to the world, the, the history of interpreting this sermon is very interesting. One scholar says the history of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising and render it harmless. You see, most, many Christians over history, they read this sermon and they think, well, this, this can't really apply to the general Christian. This has got to be for monks or nuns or pastors or priests or, or super Christians. But no. Stanley Hauerwas says, this is, the sermon is a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. It's about disciples living in the kingdom of God. It's a new culture. That's why it says his disciples came to him. His disciples, those who want to follow him, they are with him and he began to teach them. It's for disciples. It's for the church. It's for how the church ought to live in the world. It's instructions on how to live in the kingdom of God as the people of God. And just as that Japanese culture felt so different, so counterintuitive to me, so this sermon is going to feel this way to the world. In fact, Jesus will often directly compare his teaching to to the way that the world or other people think. And John Stott went as far as to say that the central phrase of this sermon is, do not be like them. Do not be like them. Do not be like the world. Live in the countercultural reality of my kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing. And however upside down, down it may seem, we have to learn his values, his kingdom, his culture, and his teaching. Because as we said, he is the authoritative king, the Messiah, the Lord. And once we begin to see that his teaching it teaches us to live, we'll begin to see that what he says is actually right side up. So teaches teaches us disciples how to live in his kingdom. And finally, the last thing is that Jesus calls us to put this sermon into practice. This is the most essential thing about this sermon. And I won't comment fully on it now, but it's essentially that we it's essential that we hear the end of the sermon before we embark upon the beginning. Jesus says at the end, "Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock." The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. And you all know what happens to the house built on the sand. But the essential point is, Christians are to live out the teachings of their king. And even though that this sermon contains some of the most inspiring, powerful words in human history, The point is not to be simply inspired, but to be transformed as his disciples and to be obedient. And if you were to sit down sometime this week and read through the whole sermon, which I'd encourage you to do, you'll realize very quickly how tall of an order this is. This is a really tall order for Christians to obey Jesus' teachings. So what are we going to do? Well, friends, you can take really two tactics here. You can try to obey the teachings of Jesus, 
or you can train. You can either try or you can train. And so I want you to pretend that I'm your coach right now. Say I'm your, I'm your running coach. And I want to tell you, go, go run a marathon. Just go run a marathon. How many of you would like to just try? You know, why don't, we, why don't you, after church, lace up your shoes, just go over to Herrick Lake, give it a try. Run 26 miles. Let's see how it goes. All right, some of you are smiling. And you're like, yeah, I could do that. Okay, I see. <laughs> give the try approach. I'm guessing for most of us, that wouldn't go so well, that we couldn't do it. But that's what most Christians do. When we hear things that we are ought to be doing, the, the obedience to the teachings, we just say, you know, I'll, I'll do that. I'll try to do that. But alternatively, if you wanted to be really successful, you'd adopt a training program to transform your whole body, to enable yourself to do what you cannot currently do and what you've been called to do. So that's what we have to do with the Sermon on the Mount. We have to train to become the kind of disciples who can live out the teachings of Jesus. How should we train? Well, there's many ways. But let me suggest to you the practice of meditation and memorization. Don't discount the power of this practice. There's many verses I could give you about this, but I want to give you one from Joshua. When Joshua was about to enter the promised land, God was speaking to him, encouraging him. And he says to Joshua, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It's amazing how this is very similar to what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to, I want you to go do it. Put it into practice. And God is saying to Joshua, I want you to obey the whole law. Obey, do everything written in the law, the Torah. Wow, that seems like an impossible task, does it not? But God says to Joshua, here's how you're going to be able to do it. You're going to train. You're not just going to try, you're going to train. I'm going to give you a spiritual discipline, and here it is. Keep this law on your lips day and night. And as you meditate on it, you will be enabled to carry out everything therein. God gave Joshua a command, and then he gives him a spiritual discipline. Bible meditation, probably to the point of having most of it memorized, to enable him to be obedient. And this is why at the outset of this sermon series, as a church, we're encouraging you. We're giving you a spiritual discipline to meditate upon and to memorize at least portions. Some of you are challenged to do the whole thing. The Sermon on the Mount. It will help you put into practice what Jesus teaches, which is the main point. We can't just try, we have to train. Well, some of you might say, well, why, why, mes- why, why memorize it if I can just read it? We have Bibles now. I can just read the Sermon on the Mount. I know what's in there. Well, see, meditation and memorization, they're not about just having it in your head. It's not about just having an awareness of what Jesus teaches. It's not just about remembering what he teaches. You see, when you meditate and memorize, it will get Jesus' teaching down deeper into your heart. If you constantly think on it day in and day out, it will literally change your brain. We know this. It will change your brain and thus change you. If you meditate on the most powerful, life-transforming words of Jesus, friends, it's going to get into your soul. It will retrain your, retrain your habits. 
It will shift your emotions. It will begin to dominate your thoughts, and then it will begin to come out in your conversations with your friends, with your family. It will then change your relationships and your speech and your behavior. And the more and more that that happens, the more and more you will be changed, and you will be enabled to live in the kingdom of Jesus with joy and peace. Don't you want that? If we do that, if we live out what this sermon teaches, then also this world will be changed. But I'm afraid most of us Christians, when we hear stuff that we should do, we, we take the try approach. I'm going to try to obey Jesus. How's that working for you? Would you not just experiment with me for, for one sermon series? Experiment with me on the train approach. And see if God won't transform you from the inside out. I believe he will. Spend some time each day meditating upon and memorizing these words and see if it doesn't change your life. It truly is the world's greatest sermon. And over the next few months, we're going to dive into it as a church community. But let's get it into our hearts. Let's get it into our souls. Let's talk about it in the foyer. Let's talk about it in our small groups. Let's talk about it in our homes. Let's talk about it in our neighborhoods, our workplaces. And let's let it spill out into the world with the transforming love and teaching of Jesus Christ. Amen?